0: Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane Planetin, and you're in the right place if you're ready to create an inspired life, and we do so by working on our own personal development so we can be strong role models for those we love and mentor and strong-minded for ourselves so we can succeed because you deserve to succeed. We are on chapter 32 in our Psych 100 course at Queen's University, so let's get started. This chapter is all about forgetting and amnesia. This is going to be fascinating, right? Learning objectives to keep in the back of your mind as we talk about this chapter. I am not a teacher, I am a student, so I want uh, to just make that clear. I'm just sharing this information with you to help everybody study, including myself. So the learning objectives. Identify five reasons we forget and give examples of each. Describe how forgetting can be viewed as an adaptive process and explain the difference between anterograde and retrograde amnesia. Chances are that you have experienced memory lapses and been frustrated by them. You may have had trouble remembering the definition of a key term on an exam or found yourself unable to recall the name of an actor from one of your favorite TV shows. Maybe you forgot to call your aunt on her birthday, or you routinely forget where you put your cell phone. Oftentimes, the bit of information we are searching for comes back to us. Sometimes it does not. Clearly, forgetting seems to be a natural part of life. Why do we forget? And is forgetting always a bad thing? (laughs) Causes of forgetting. One very common and obvious reason why you cannot remember a piece of information is because you did not learn it in the first place. If you fail to encode information into memory, you are not going to remember it later on. Usually encoding failures occur because we are distracted or not paying attention to specific details. For example, people have a lot of trouble recognizing an actual penny out of a set of drawings of very similar pennies or lures, even though most of us have had a lifetime experience handling pennies. However, few of us have studied the features of a penny in great detail, and since so we have not attended to those details, We fail to recognize them later. Similarly, it has been well documented that distraction during learning impairs later memory. Most of the time this is not problematic, but in certain situations, such as when you're studying for an exam, failures to encode due to distraction can have serious repercussions. Another proposed reason why we forget is that memories fade or decay over time. It has been known since the pioneering work of Herman Ebbinghaus, that as time passes, memories get harder to recall. Ebbinghaus created more than 2,000 nonsense syllables such as Dax, Bap, and Riff, and studied his own memory for them, learning as many as 420 lists of 16 nonsense syllables for one experiment. He found that his memories diminished as time passed, with the most forgetting happening early on after learning. His observations and subsequent research suggested that if we do not rehearse a memory and the neural representation of that memory is not reactivated over a long period of time, the memory representation may disappear entirely or fade to the point where it can no longer be accessed. As you might imagine, it is hard to definitely prove that a memory has decayed as opposed to being inaccessible for another reason. Critics argued that forgetting must be due to processes other than simply the passage of time, since disuse of a memory does not always guarantee forgetting. Hmm. More recently, some memory theorists have proposed that recent memory traces may be degraded or disrupted by new experiences. Memory traces need to be consolidated or transferred from the hippocampus to more durable representation in the cortex in order for them to last. When the consolidation process is interrupted by the encoding of other experiences, the memory trace for the original experience does not get fully developed and thus is forgotten. Both encoding failures and decay account for more permanent forms of forgetting in which the memory trace does not exist, but forgetting may also occur when a memory exists, yet we temporarily cannot access it. This type of forgetting may occur when we lack the appropriate retrieval cues for bringing the memory to mind. You have probably had the frustrating experience of forgetting your password for an online site. Usually the password has not been permanently forgotten. Instead, you just need the right reminder to remember it. For example, if your password was pizza0525 and you received the password's hint favorite food and mom's birthday, you would easily be able to retrieve it. Retrieval hints can bring back to mind seemingly forgotten memories. At times, we will completely blank on something we're certain we've learned. People we went to school with years ago, for example. However, once we get the right retrieval cue, a name perhaps, the memory, faces or experiences, rushes back to us like it was there all along. One real-life illustration of the importance of retrieval cues comes from a study showing that whereas people have difficulty recalling the names of high school classmates years after graduation, they are easily able to recognize the names and match them to the appropriate faces. The names are powerful enough retrieval cues that they bring back the memories of the faces that went with them. The fact that the presence of the right retrieval cue is critical for remembering adds to the difficulty in proving that a memory is permanently forgotten as opposed to temporarily unavailable. Retrieval failures can also occur because other memories are blocking or getting in the way of recalling the desired memory. This blocking is referred to as interference. For example, you may fail to remember the name of a town you visited with your family on summer vacation because the names of other towns you visited on the trip or up on or on other trips come to mind instead. Those memories then prevent the desired memory from being retrieved. Interference is also relevant to the example of forgetting a password. Passwords that we have used other websites may come to mind and interfere with our ability to retrieve the desired password. Interference can be either proactive, in which old memories block the learning of new related memories, or retroactive, in which new memories block the retrieval of old related memories. For both types of interference, competition between memories seems to be key. Your memory for a town you visited on vacation is unlikely to interfere with your ability To remember an internet password, but it is likely to interfere with your ability to remember a different town's name. Competition between memories can also lead to forgetting in a different way. Recalling a desired memory in the face of competition may result in the inhibition of related competing memories. You may have difficulty recalling the name of Bunkinport, Maine, because other main towns such as Bar Harbor, Winterport, and Camden come to mind instead. However, if you are able to recall Bunkinport, despite strong competition from the other towns, this may actually change the competitive landscape, weakening memory for the other towns' names, leading to forget them instead. Finally, some memories may be forgotten because we deliberately attempt to keep them out of mind. Over time, by actively trying not to remember an event, we can sometimes successfully keep the undesirable memory from being retrieved, either by inhibiting the undesirable memory or generating diversionary thoughts. Imagine that you slipped and fell in your high school cafeteria during lunchtime and everyone at the surrounding tables laughed at you. You would likely wish to avoid thinking about that event and might even try to prevent it from coming to mind. One way that you could accomplish this is by thinking of other more positive events that are associated with the cafeteria. Eventually, this memory may be suppressed to the point that it would only be retrieved with great difficulty. We have five bullet points here if you're listening to the show versus watching it on YouTube that I'm going to read. Five impediments to remembering. Impediments are like uh, blockages. Number one, encoding failures. We don't learn the information in the first place. Decay. Memories fade over time. Three, inadequate retrieval cues. We lack sufficient reminders. Interference. Other memories get in the way. And five, trying not to remember. We deliberately attempt to keep things out of mind. Next is adaptive forgetting. We have explored five different causes of forgetting. Together, they can account for the day-to-day episodes of forgetting that each of us experience. Typically, we think of these episodes in a negative light and view forgetting as a memory failure. Is forgetting ever good? Most people would reason that forgetting that occurs in a response to a deliberate attempt to keep an event out of mind is a good thing. No one wants to be constantly reminded of falling on their face in front of all of their friends. However, beyond that, it can be argued that forgetting is adaptive, allowing us to be efficient and hold on to only the most relevant memories. Chervesky, or S, the mnemonist studied by Alexander Luria, was a man who almost never forgot. His memory appeared to be virtually limitless, he could memorize a table of 50 numbers in under three minutes and recall the numbers in rows, columns, or diagonals with ease. He could recall lists of words and passages that he had memorized over a decade before. Yet, Shcherwelsky, let's call him ass, <laughs> found it difficult to function in his everyday life because he was constantly distracted by a flood of details and associations that sprung to mind. This case history suggests that remembering everything is not always a good thing. You may occasionally have trouble remembering where you parked your car, but imagine if every time you had to find your car, every single form of parking space came to mind. The task would become impossibly difficult to sort through all of those irrelevant memories. Thus, forgetting is adaptive in that it makes us more efficient. The price of that efficiency is those moments when our memories seem to fail us amnesia. Clearly, remembering everything would be maladaptive, but what would it be like to remember nothing? We will now consider a profound form of forgetting called amnesia that is distinct from more ordinary forms of forgetting. Most of us have had exposure to the concept of amnesia through popular movies and television. Typically, in these fictionalized portrayals of amnesia, a character suffers some type of blow to the head and suddenly has no idea who they are and can no longer recognize their family or remember any events from their past. After some period of time or another blow to the head, their memories come flooding back to them. Unfortunately, this portrayal of amnesia is not very accurate. What does amnesia typically look like? The most widely studied amnesic patient was known by his initials H.M. As a teenager, H.M. suffered from severe epilepsy, and in 1953, he underwent surgery to have both of his medial temporal lobes removed to relieve his epileptic seizures. The medial temporal lobes encompass the hippocampus and surrounding cortical tissue, Although the surgery was successful in reducing H.M.'s seizures and his general intelligence was preserved, the surgery left H.M. with a profound and permanent memory deficit. From the time of his surgery until his death in 2008, H.M. was unable to learn new information, a memory impairment called anterograde amnesia. H.M. could not remember any event that occurred since his surgery including highly significant ones, such as the death of his father. He could not remember conversation he had a few minutes prior or recognize the face of someone who had visited him that same day. He could keep information in his short-term or working memory, but when his attention turned to something else, that information was lost for good. It is important to denote that HM memory impairment was restrictive to declarative memory or conscious memory for facts and events. HM could learn new motor skills and showed improvement on motor tasks, even in the absence of any memory for having performed the task before. In addition to anterograde amnesia, HM also suffered from temporarily graded retrograde amnesia. Retrograde amnesia refers to the inability to retrieve old memories that occurred before the onset of amnesia. Extensive retrograde amnesia is the absence of anterior grade amnesia is very rare. More commonly, retrograde amnesia co-occurs with anterior grade amnesia and shows a temporal gradient in which memories closest in time to the onset of amnesia are lost, but more remote memories are retained. In the case of HM, he could remember events from his childhood but he could not remember events that occurred a few years before surgery. Amnesic patients with damage to the hippocampus and surrounding medial temporal lobes typically manifest a similar clinical profile as HM. The degree of anterior grade amnesia and retrograde amnesia depend on the extent of the medial temporal lobe damage with greater damage associated with more extensive impairment. Anterior grade amnesia provides evidence for the role of the hippocampus in the formation of long-lasting declarative memories as damage to the hippocampus results in an inability to create this type of new memory. Similarly, temporally graded retrograde amnesia can be seen as providing further evidence for the importance of memory consolidation a memory depends on the hippocampus until it is consolidated and transferred into a more durable form that is stored in the cortex. According to this theory, an amnesic patient like H.M. could remember events from his remote past because those memories were fully consolidated and no longer depended on the hippocampus. Well, that's fascinating. Dr. Brenda Milner, one of the psychological scientists who worked with HM, is a pioneering expert in the field of neuropsychology. Indeed, she is often referred to as the founder of the field of clinical neuropsychology and cognitive neuroscience. She is a distinguished professor in the Department of Neurology and Neurosurgery at McGill University. There is a video that uh, I'll link in the show notes about this video clip from Dr. Milner talks about her work with HM. The classic amnesiac syndrome we have considered here is sometimes referred to as organic amnesia, and it is distinct from functional or disassociative amnesia. Functional amnesia involves a loss of memory that cannot be attributed to brain injury or any obvious brain disease and is typically classified as a mental disorder rather than a neurological disorder. The clinical profile of disassociative amnesia is very different from that of a patient who suffered from amnesia due to brain damage or deterioration. Individuals who experience disassociative amnesia often have a history of trauma. Their amnesia is retrograde, encompassing autobiographical memories from a portion of their past. In an extreme version of this disorder, people enter a dissociative fugue state in which they lose most or all of their autobiographical memories and their sense of personal identity. They may be found wandering in a new location, unaware of who they are and how they got there. Dissociative amnesia is controversial as both the causes and existence of it have been called into question. The memory loss associated with dissociative amnesia is much less likely to be permanent than it is in organic amnesia. In conclusion, just as the case study of the numanus Sharevsky illustrates that a life with a near perfect memory would be like, amnesiac patients show us what a life without memory would be like. Each of the mechanisms we discuss that explain everyday forgetting, encoding failures, decay, insufficient retrieval cues, interference, and intentional attempts to forget help to keep us highly efficient, retaining the important information, and for the most part, forgetting the unimportant amnesia patients allow us a glimpse into what life would be like if we suffered from profound forgetting and perhaps show us that our everyday lapses in memory are not so bad after all. Well, that was good news for me. (laughs) Where did I park my car, right? It's not bad. It's normal. And that's a good thing to know. So if you like the show, share it with someone you know, and uh, maybe give us a thumbs up, subscribe. You don't want to miss the next chapter. Let's help out the community to live an inspired life.